Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm your host, Joe Brand. We are without Tina Martini today, but we do have Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. Rich, great to see you as always. Good to see you. Good to see you coming off a busy hockey week, Joe. I know the uh, Hawks have had some up and down uh, games. My Canadians were in the uh, battle yesterday against the Coyotes for number one pick in the draft. Now now we officially are the worst team in hockey, so... uh, Hawks fan, there's always a worse situation out there, and I'm living it. Yeah, yeah, quite a fall from the Western Conference champions. Anyway, let's get to our lead segment. We'll cover getting the vaccine mandates, abortion rights, and the Supreme Court case regarding Boston refusing to fly a Christian flag. With that, we bring in Gabe Roth, Executive Director at Fix the Court. You can find his work at fixthecourt.com. Gabe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Professor Nicole Huberfeld of Boston University, where she teaches health law and ethics and human rights, also co-authoring the first new casebook on healthcare law in a generation. Professor, thanks so much for joining us as well. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's jump right into the case that got a lot of attention last week, which is the Supreme Court's ruling um, in favor of the administration's vaccine mandate in some uh, fields, but not others. Gabe, uh, a lot of discussion, and I listened to the entire argument, it was fascinating, but a lot of discussion was about this major questions doctrine. What is that and why was it raised in this case? Sure. So can an administrative agency implement a major policy, a, a life-altering policy, without Congress's written, uh, express written consent, essentially? Uh, so that was that was the question at hand. Could Congress do something, could an administrative or a sub administrative agency, right? OSHA's, you know, part of HHS, could they require every employer, 100 people or more, to require tests and vax for their employee? And that was something that the conservative majority of the case said, the the law that created this sub-agency never would have imagined. It's too major a question. It's too major of an issue. Congress needs to expressly give that permission. The flip side of this is, is there hasn't been a global pandemic since the law creating this sub-agency, OSHA, uh, was put into effect. So just because something is new doesn't mean that it can't be done by uh, the sub-agency that's in charge of protecting workers' health, which is what the Biden administration tried to do. Professor, as an expert in, in health law and public health, what are your thoughts on how the Supreme Court ruled in the first case involving employers over 100 employees and then allowing mandates for the healthcare industry? So let me just say there's really no doctrine to the major questions doctrine, despite what the Supreme Court seems to be holding. Uh, the relying on a case called FDA versus Brown and Williamson, where the Supreme Court decided that the FDA couldn't regulate tobacco. And there is no major questions doctrine that comes out of that case. There's some language about it being the duty of Congress to regulate matters that are economic or political and their significance. 
that there is no doctrine. So this is actually part of an attempt on the new Roberts Court, meaning most recent appointees to the Roberts Court, to limit administrative power. Is there a substantive or sensible dividing line between how the court read OSHA's power and how the court read the Department of Health and Human Services ability to ensure that health care providers are vaccinated? Not really. Um, OSHA has actually required vaccination and in the past hasn't really needed to. As Gabe said, we've never faced a pandemic while OSHA has been in existence, especially uh, one of this scale. There have been other SARS type viruses that have been threats, but nothing like this. And so the OSHA decision to me reflects a larger project, which is to try to limit the power of administrative agencies writ large. On the other hand, the Department of Health and Human Services regularly requires healthcare providers to do certain things to receive Medicare and Medicaid money. And so there was really no principled way for the Supreme Court to decide that that it would be odd for the Department of Health and Human Services to decide that in order for healthcare to be safe, healthcare workers must be vaccinated. So it really would have looked very fishy for the court to decide that HHS didn't have that authority. So I think that's where they drew the line, frankly. And if you read the opinions, they read very much like the oral arguments. Now, of course, the oral arguments were four hours and everybody doesn't have time for that. But you could hear where the justices were going, which was that they were skeptical of OSHA's authority and less skeptical of HHS's authority. What about the rationale, Professor, that this is more of a state issue that mandates be more, they're more suited for the states to administer if those states feel that they are necessary for the protection of their citizens? Historically, the states are responsible for public health, safety, and welfare. However, when it comes to something like a pandemic, which does not care about any kind of border, state, local, international, national, doesn't matter. Borders are irrelevant. It requires collective action, and collective action requires the federal government to act especially where we have states that are not only not acting in the face of the pandemic, but actually retrenching policies and trying to eliminate things like requirements for vaccination, eliminating actions for containment like mask wearing and social distancing. When you have states that are acting in a way that is anti-science and anti-evidence, the federal government needs to step in. Uh, Gabe, the benefit, one of the benefits, in, in addition to learning a lot about the law in listening to these arguments for the first time, is that we're learning things about the justices and the process that otherwise we may not be privy to, including, and this is not something we heard, but we learned that Justice Gorsuch was the only justice not wearing a mask during these arguments. Of course, Justice Sotomayor was in her chambers because she's got, you know, a, a pre-existing condition that she's concerned about. So we learned that. We learned, of course, that Justice Sotomayor, which has now broken the internet almost, you know, made this comment about 100,000 children being on ventilators that quickly was debunked. Um, and that caused a lot of, you know, um, just our, our observers who don't agree with Justice Sotomayor to question her intelligence, question her uh, knowledge of the facts, etc. What are we learning about some of the justices, including those two instances I just mentioned, by this new openness about listening to oral arguments? Well, yeah, that's great. And that's an, that's an important point that you make is that this is now we're uh, into the third year. It started in May of 2020, in which the justices are hearing, uh, are, are offering a live audio stream of their oral arguments to the public, right? In a normal time, in a normal oral argument, only about 50 members of the general public and about 200 other people can fit inside the Supreme Court courtroom and the 
argument audio would be released at the end of the week. This is live. This is maybe there's a few second delay, but this is for all intents and purposes, live audio. So more and more Americans are tuning in. They're learning about the justices attitudes towards uh, major issues that are, that are going before the court. I mean, I think, you know, Gorsuch more, maybe more so than, than the whole mask gate is, is the fact that he's always harping on, you know, what does the text say? What does the text say? Trying to become, you know, take the, the, the mantle of the, the most textualist and the most uh, uh, intellectually rigorous uh, originalist on, on the right side. Whereas, you know, talk about a case that happened yesterday with the, the Christian flag flying in Boston. Uh, you've got Breyer and Kagan uh, being the court's pragmatists, saying, you know, why is this the case before the Supreme Court? Can't we figure out a compromise? Can't there be a settlement? Why are you wasting our time? So I think people are sort of seeing the justices' personalities shine through in, in ways that they might not would uh, they might not have if we had to wait till the end of the week to hear what they were thinking on these. And to that point, the award for maybe most most self-effacing justice has to go to Breyer, who I think said almost every time that. I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, he admits in, in many different respects that he's not. Now, that's obviously a strategy, right? I think he's, you know, sort of doing that, obviously, very strategically. But I thought it was very funny the way he says that, you know, on more than one occasion. Yeah, he, he uh, you know, the old, old joke at the Supreme Court is, you know, when's the next Briar page? And, and the way that the transcript comes out of the Supreme Court, it's, it's typed up pretty soon after the, an oral argument is finished. And you've got, you know, most questions are question lengths, 10, 12, 20 words. But Breyer questions are an entire page of the transcript as he's sort of talking to himself, maybe, or his clerks or the past or the future or who knows uh, during these long uh, soliloquies. So, you know, he's always been that. And, you know, I think he's going to announce his retirement in a few weeks. So, uh, you know, maybe he'll be able to talk to himself more when he's uh, sitting out in his uh, Cambridge home away from the one first street in D.C. Well, maybe you're breaking news that uh, the rest of us are waiting for on the uh, on the uh, Breyer uh, news. But let's hold on that. Um, Professor, let's move on to abortion. Obviously, the, you know, another huge issue that is before the Supreme Court. Um, it's expected, right, that the majority, the new Roberts majority that you talked about, will overturn or, you know, scale back Roe v. Wade just this week. Uh, the Texas case that, um, you know, is very much in the news that scales back. Roe v. Wade in and of itself was sent to um, the U.S., the Fifth Circuit sent it to the Texas Supreme Court. So what are your thoughts about how the Roberts majority will rule on this issue, especially, again, to Gabe's point, listening to these arguments and how you could probably preview what they're going to write based on some of the oral arguments, right? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it's become very confusing what procedural posture of this case is. So the Supreme Court had to decide whether litigation could proceed against Texas because Texas is trying to avoid being in federal court. And so the Supreme Court decided, yes, the Texas licensure board would have to enforce this law against any healthcare provider that provides an abortion after six weeks of gestation. And so therefore, the state of Texas can be hailed into federal court. However, there appears to be a call on the part of Texas to get Texas courts to decide whether this is true, whether the state medical licensing board would in fact have to enforce the law. And so that's why the case has been kicked to the state Supreme Court to get a declaratory judgment as to whether or not the medical licensure board would have to act in these cases. If they decide that the medical licensure board would not have to act, then Texas effectively will evade federal courts 
and evade responsibility to ensure that its residents can actually recognize their own constitutional rights. So the question of constitutional rights is not active in the Texas case right now. Where it is active is the Mississippi case that the Supreme Court heard about a month ago. And in the Mississippi case, the question is, can Mississippi prevent people from having abortions after 15 weeks in one of these so-called fetal heartbeat laws? The justices seemed to be testing different kinds of boundaries. So, for example, Justice Kavanaugh likes to do this thing where he acts like he's the good guy and says nice things to the litigants. Oh, I hear you. These are really important questions. But he was saying, shouldn't the court be scrupulously neutral here? And that would mean that the court is basically going to just take its hands out of the matter and send it back to the states. Well, that's a proxy for allowing some states to completely outlaw abortion and allowing some states to protect it. And there are states, in fact, that have trigger laws that would make it so that abortion is illegal as soon as the court does that. What would the court do in this case? I think it's really hard to say. It depends on whether Roberts can do some convincing. He seemed to be trying to explore the line of viability to try to understand what it means to push it back in some of these cases to make it so that abortions are unavailable after 15 weeks. The truth is the majority of abortions actually occur by 15 weeks. However, the people who are least likely to be able to obtain an abortion after 15 weeks are the most vulnerable populations, young women, women of color, poor women. And so those are the people who would be most affected by changes in the law, because in reality, women of means have always been able to obtain the health care that they need. So that's sort of where I see it the debate being right now. It's a question as to whether Roberts can hold some kind of middle. But I don't think we're going to end up with Roe and Casey being the same as they were before the Dobbs case. Yeah, agreed. Last question here, Gabe, on legal face-off. We'll let you go. This is fascinating stuff. But you mentioned uh, your prediction that Justice Breyer will retire in a few weeks, right? I mean, this whole retire Breyer movement has been uh, basically in effect since President Biden came into office. The logic being you need him to retire, certainly during a Biden presidency, but also very importantly, before the Republicans regain control of the Senate. Do you see Justice Breyer doing that before the congressional midterm elections happen? Um, and that would mean, of course, that he is conscious of not making the Supreme Court even more conservative than it is. Because if the next president, if that person is a Republican, appoints uh, a justice, then you'll have a seven to two majority which is almost insurmount, uh, insurmountable for most issues. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, my, my guess based on just experience in this and, and, and talking to sources is that, you know, he'll, he'll let the White House know in the next couple of probably about two or three months that that's his thinking. So the White House can have a, a nominee ready to go. And, and once the Supreme Court has handed down its biggest opinions, which usually happens around uh, June 30th, July 1st, so there'll be a nominee ready for around the beginning of July. And then in Breyer's retirement would be conditioned on the appointment of a successor, right? So he could, you know, he has every right to say, I will only retire if a successor is confirmed. So yeah, I think his, he cares about his legacy. He cares about the legacy of the court. He knows what happened with when Ruth Bader Ginsburg retired, uh, or sorry, passed away and, and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, took that seat and it changed the makeup of the court and he wouldn't want to go down the same path. So I think he's very keen on his legacy and that will cause him to step down at the end of the term. And I would expect more trickles uh, to come out in the, in the coming weeks on that. Again, that's Gabe Roth of Fix the Court. Find out more at fixthecourt.com or on Twitter at fixthecourt and also Professor Nicole Huberfeld, whose work has been cited by the Supreme Court. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you very much. 
Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Continuing on on the Legal Faceoff podcast around WGN Radio, we move to the topic of Travis McMichael, the man who shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, as requesting a new trial after being sentenced to life in prison without parole. With that, we bring in attorney Lee Merritt, who's currently running for attorney general in Texas. Find out more about his campaign, Lee Merritt, that's M-E-R-R-I-T-T, the number four, Texas.com for more information. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Lee, you represent uh, Mount Arbery's family. Obviously, they've been through um, a lot of trauma over the last couple of years. How do they feel about this filing, which in some respects is not surprising, right, in any criminal case, but it's got to be difficult for the family to see uh, a motion for a new trial by the convicted McMichael defendant. Um, Michael's approached our family. The, the barbarian requested a plea deal before the sentencing, and they would have waived every right to appeal, and they would have pled guilty to the federal charges as well. Well, that plea deal is still under discussion, and I, I think this uh, immediate appeal, on top of being just typical, uh, is a reminder that this can go away for them if they if the family agrees to the federal plea deal uh, for the hate crime charges as well. Yeah, Lee, talk to us about your clients, the family. I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes you hear that justice is served in these situations. The result, the reality is, right, justice is never really served uh, when you have to bury a son or a daughter or a father or a mother. Um, you know, we're uh, happy when the justice system does its job in a case like this, but I think it's difficult to classify this result as justice. How does the family feel about the trial and, and the results? And you're absolutely right. The family is always going to live with the loss of Ahmad, the really terrible way that he was murdered, uh, the, the trauma that it caused for them to have to sit through a trial and see the video over and over again. And of course, the millions of times that it was seen around the country uh, and it will continue to sort of live in infamy. It has changed their family for good. And this outcome was a bit of a reprieve. It, get, it you know, it gives them an opportunity at closure. And not only this outcome, which was historic with the three licenses, two without the possibility of parole, but there were some things that have changed in the state of Georgia. 
and, and the family feels relieved by that. Wanda Cooper Jones, Ahmad's mom in particular, you know, she takes solace in the fact that, you know, the, the, the law that these men relied on to justify the murder of her son is no longer on the books. That law has been changed. Uh, the citizen's arrest statute has now been updated out of the Civil, uh, Civil War era. So sorry about that. In addition to that, Georgia finally has a hate crime statute. And so uh, to see the laws change in the way that it has and on top of the historic uh, sentencing was a, a huge relief for the family. No question. We covered that extensively. And, you know, it is it, you have to you know, you often hear the word historic thrown around. This case really did result in two significant changes in uh, in the state of Georgia. So that uh, is hugely beneficial going forward. But again, I don't want to rehash, you know, the ins and outs of the trial because I know you've done that extensively. But I I do just want to talk briefly about your response and, and importantly, the family's response to a comment that was widely you know, seen and we're covering today in a later segment, some questionable behavior by members of the legal profession. And I got to say, we covered this you know, extensively when it happened, but I rarely seen as offensive a comment as, you know, that comment by the defense attorney when she commented on, you know, uh, Ahmed Arbery's toenails in, in a, what I considered a, you know, just blatantly racist appeal to a jury using old, you know, dog whistles and tropes that, to this day, when you say it out loud, when you think about someone commenting on a decedent's toenails, you know, an African-American who was unfortunately hunted down by three white males, it's shocking. It shocks the city. You know, it's still shocking. So, you know, again, it's hard to relive that. But how do the family feel? They had, they had to have been devastated to, to hear those words. Well, the family was prepared for attacks on Ahmad's character. We knew that that was par for the course for this kind of trial in order to, for the defense to justify the actions of their clients. They would have to make Ahmad to be the villain. But you're right. This wasn't just that. You know, that's that's normal. That's what we see happen in these kind of trials. Uh, Ms. Hogue, the, the defense attorney for Gregory McMichael, went a bit further in dehumanizing Ahmad. Um, you know, if you go back to that that closing statement, she talks about his dirty toenails. She talks about his long, le- long legs. She, she's describing him as if she's des- describing some sort of beast. And it was a indirect, I mean, a, a very direct, I should say, appeal to racism and bigotry. And I, I'm just glad that it didn't, it did, I think it hurt her and her client more than anything. Uh, and it's something that Wanda, ahead of the sentencing of these men, where it was able to throw back in her face and let the judge remind the judge that that's what she said. You know, now she wants to say that he's contrite and, you know, maybe there should be some leniency. No, uh, he empowered Miss Hogue uh, to completely dehumanize her son and serving the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole and so will his son. Lee, before we let you go, we want to talk about your candidacy for Texas Attorney General. As Joe mentioned, talk to us about why you decided to run and what changes you think you could bring to that office. The Ahmad Arbery trial actually played a, a, a major role in my decision to run. When we got involved in Ahmad's case in 2020, these men were free. Uh, the prosecuting uh, community had decided that they had committed no crime. And for the next two months, they walked the streets and Wanda saw them in the grocery store one day. It, it was um, 
um, a place in South Georgia where they just weren't interested in doing and doing justice. And so we had to figure out how to get the state to uphold the Constitution to protect all its citizens equally. And we started with the state attorney general's office. Uh, and we spoke with Chris Carr, uh, who's the attorney general for Georgia. And we talked about the the, the responsibilities of the prosecutor. Uh, prosecutor's, uh, prosecutor's office in the case. Um, and, I, and I've had a chance to do that in George Floyd's case, where Hennepin County was not interested initially in bringing criminal charges in Minnesota. Uh, Keith Ellison, the attorney general, came in. He hired some special prosecutors, worked with Hennepin County to secure a historic conviction. And uh, over the course of advocating for families, even the family of Breonna Taylor, we can remember that the uh, attorney general there played a key role in denying that family justice and is, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many, the misrepresentation of the facts uh, to the grand jury. Um, And so um, advocating for families across the country and seeing how important uh, the AG's role is not only doing justice, but leading the charge and changing the laws and and, and ensuring that when prosecutors fail to do their job, that AG is, is, is there to hold them in check. Well, there's no place where civil liberties are sort of absent, like Texas, uh, where the voting rights uh, are under attack, where women's rights are under attack. Uh, And we have a a real uh, civil rights violator in Ken Paxton, who was present on January 6th in Washington, D.C., who gave the charge to the the men and women who invaded the nation's capital. And I, I wanted to use this opportunity as we advocate for families across the country to say, well, Texas can do better and to put my name in the hat for uh, a change in Texas. Again, to find out more about Lee's campaign, go to LeeMeritForTexas.com. That's Merit with two R's, two T's, the number four, Texas.com. Lee, thanks again for the great insight on such a somber conversation. Thank you all so much for covering it. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, and community leaders have reportedly asked transportation unions in Chicago to shut down over the weekend after the news of Jason Van Dyke possibly being released early from prison. With that, we bring in Dr. LaShawn Latrice. We're also hoping to have William Calloway, but Dr. LaShawn Latrice is a doctor of philosophy at National Lewis University. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. So, Doctor, we heard last week that uh, from the uh, Illinois Prisoner Review Board, Jason Van Dyke, of course, the white Chicago police officer who was convicted uh, of shooting and killing Laquan McDonald, um, is going to be released early. Now, many people were unhappy when Van Dyke was sentenced because he did not get what many people believe to be a sufficient sentence. So knowing that as a backdrop, how do you feel about this news that he's being released even earlier than he was sentenced to? Well, when we got the news, um, we all were outraged. It was um, 
a, a voice that echoed through the entire uh, community that fought really hard uh, for conviction for Jason Van Dyke. So once we heard that information of a possible of a possible um, release date for February 3rd, um, we knew that that was not only an early release, but we also thought there was a major miscarriage of justice. And so that's why we decided to come together to try to help. Okay. You know, what whatever we could do to try to seek some justice for the family of Laquan McDonald. So what we heard uh, is that he's being released for good behavior. Uh, right. Yeah. Many people feel that that same standard isn't applied to people who are serving time who are of color. Uh, do you think a different standard is being applied to Jason Van Dyke because of his status as a white male police officer? Absolutely. We we really uh, believe that this is two sets of justice laws that apply. And we believe that people of color don't receive this type of justice um, because Jason Van Dyke was a white officer um, who was a police officer. He is already being given a, a different set of uh, rules to live by anyway. And the fact that he's allowed to be released on good time when there are laws on the books that prohibit people who commit crimes of violence um, to be released early on good time. So we don't understand how how this could even take place. And so that's one of the major issues that we have with this entire situation. It's also a little frustrating because the information that we've received is not uh, entirely clear, right? I mean, inherently, these issues involving prisoners in prison, they're always, we always don't have as much transparency as we would like. And especially in this case, you know, he was uh, sent from Illinois to federal prison and we didn't get a lot of information about how that all went down. So does that add to the frustration about how this is all being, uh, you know, communicated, number one, but also how it's happening? Yes, it does add to the frustration because most inmates, um, their location is public. Um, you can look them up online. You can find out where they are. Um, the fact that he's being moved from one institution to another secretly, that's another issue. And then we don't know if this is the real situation of why he's being moved because he's being attacked or if it's something that they've come up with just to um, try to appease uh, the issue of people knowing who he is, whatever facility that he's housed in. So that's a huge issue for us. So uh, as Joe mentioned, in the wake of this news, uh, you and some others have organized some efforts to convey your frustration and opposition to this move. Tell us a little bit more about that, please. So what we're doing now is uh, we formed a coalition with organizations, grassroots organizations and leaders throughout the city of Chicago, as well as the faith leaders. And we've come together to work with the Chicago Transit Authority, the two unions, the bus and rail union. I think it's 241 and 308. Um, the reason why they came up as an issue is because we it's kind of symbolic of what happened uh, with the Montgomery bus boycott and some things that happened back then in the civil rights uh, era that initiated this situation that we're in now. But prior to Jason Van Dyke being convicted, Will Calloway, uh, who is a person that, you know, assisted in releasing of the tape, um, he had already connected with the heads of these unions because we, we did not know if Jason Van Dyke was going to be convicted. So there were some measures put in place that we possibly would use utilizing the 
boycott of those two uh, rail and bus uh, transportation industries. And so um, that was an old issue before uh, he went to prison. But now that he's back from prison or about to be back from prison, we're trying to do everything we could so that we can push the United States uh, District Attorney, John Lausch, to uh, come forth with some criminal civil charges that are federal um, and just just morally and ethically what what should be right. And he shouldn't be released early uh, for good time because it was a violent crime, number one. And number two, a person died. And so there are people housed in these institutions uh, who have done much less and have far more significant sentences. Dr. Last question here on Legal Face Off. We appreciate your time. I want to ask you, uh, it's especially relevant in the week that we celebrate uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, have we seen any progress as an American society in the seven or eight years since Laquan McDonald was shot? Uh, we saw, and we've covered very extensively, the case in Minneapolis, right, of the officer Kim Potter, who shot Dante Wright, who was convicted of manslaughter, but she was convicted. Um, we also just are talking today about the situation involving the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, where three groundbreaking sentences were delivered in that case to three individuals who were pretending to be police officers, right? Who made a citizen's arrest, which has now been outlawed. So talk to us from your perspective about any progress that we've made since the Laquan McDonald murder. And maybe we haven't made as much progress as you'd like to see. I believe that we've made some progress definitely with, um, the case for Laquan McDonald actually set precedence for many of these other cases that you just mentioned. Um, the Ahmaud Arbery case, um, George Floyd, um, and, and, and it's been countless other cases. Um, unfortunately, they seem to keep happening, but um, the precedence has been set. Um, when charges were brought up against Derek Chauvin, um, almost a week later, there were federal charges brought up against him. We're wondering why that didn't happen in this case. Um, when, when that was the initial ask, um, this is something that we talked about at the very onset of charges being brought forth for um Jason Van Dyke. Um, so right now, I really believe that we are making some progress. I just believe that um, it's a little delayed in some states. I think some places are dragging their feet a little bit. And I don't really know why um, our political um, authorities are not speaking up a little bit more. They were very vocal when we were fighting for the release of the tape. Many of them ran uh, talking about they would seek justice for Laquan McDonald, and then they got in those very offices, and we don't even hear from them anymore. And so um, I do believe progress is being made, but I also think that it's going to take for us to hold the political authorities um, accountable for their actions and their their unactions or the lack of actions that they're not doing uh, when it comes to holding um the system accountable there should be outreach outrage right now and what we're finding out is there's more outrage outside of the state of illinois than there is within the state of illinois about jason van dyke being released and so a lot of our support is coming from it's coming from pe people we never thought of you know that are outside of you know the city of chicago and the state of illinois we just want to see that type of um 
progress reciprocated here that was done in, in Minneapolis, you know, in, in, even in the case of uh, Ahmaud Arbery. They, they did not hesitate to push forth on those charges to really show that they were going to hold these men accountable. So I just believe we have a long way to go. But I also believe at the same time, had it not been for what happened with the Laquan McDonald case, many of these other cases would have gone differently. Again, that's Dr. LaShawn Latrice of Philosophy at National Lewis University. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. You all have a wonderful day. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. On to the legal grab bag here on Legal Faceoff Podcast. Plenty of topics to get to, but first we'll introduce our guests. We've got Tony Tate, VP Client Advisor Construction at Marsh. He's also the founder of Corporate Coffee. Check out more about that at corporatecoffee.org. She's also a military mom and cancer survivor. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Along with Jessica Remkes, friend of the podcast and director of compliance at Sentinel Technologies. Jessica, thanks for being here as well. Great to be here. Jessica, All right, Rich. A former uh, former uh, coworker of mine. She recognizes <laughs> the, the room I happen to be in now well. So yeah, Jessica, welcome back. Jessica, if you know where the Clorox wipes are, Rich would like I'm to know. I'm looking. I need some <laughs> by the way. I'm so Rich, the lack of Clorox in this room, by the way. Go ahead. Emily, let's, let's yeah, so, so we start off with uh, some thinking that the police officers who responded to the Gabby Petito domestic abuse case should be placed on probation, Rich, for making too many mistakes. Yeah, I mean, we've covered the story extensively, and I just think common sense dictates that. This was a tragedy. You know, the murder of uh, Petito could have been avoided, this tragedy, by some better police work. And that's what this um, report actually states. Uh, After investigation, it was determined, again, what I think is painfully obvious, that when you stop someone and they have bruises and they look like they've been in a fight and they actually talk about being in a fight, maybe separate them, right? Don't tell one of them to go sleep it off in a hotel and treat them the way they treated the ultimate murderer. I mean, we don't know that, but we, you know, everyone thinks that uh, they let this murderer go. We all saw the body cam video of the stop and uh, it's been analyzed, right? And infinitum, but clearly some, you know, poor police work here. And that's the last anyone saw of this couple. And then, you know, of course, Gabby Petito uh, ended up murdered. 
Um, and Brian Laundrie ended up dead as well, right? So there's no justice for this. And again, this report states fairly clearly that they should have pressed charges. They should have detained. There was plenty of probable cause to detain Brian Laundrie. Um, and that is seen on this video. So pretty unfortunate, but it's good, obviously, Tony, to look at these things and shed light on them so that we could learn from them and maybe not make these mistakes again. We've seen plenty of examples of bad policing, right? On this show, we've covered for almost eight years some really uh, horrible policing. Um, and not all police are bad. Not all of them make mistakes. In this case, I think it's clear that uh, the report is accurate that they should have done things differently. Yeah, um, it's a tough call, um, in, in, in my opinion, because there's another element um, kind of added here. You know, there there's what they should have done, which we all know. And then there's kind of the, the sympathy aspect of it of, oh, you know, these these two kids are, you know, fighting. So there's there's one part where it's like, you know, part of your job. And then there's the other part that's maybe like a, a parent or a friend. And and I think those two roles just kind of got, you know, got crossed, um, unfortunately. But yeah, I do agree with you. Um, if you look at the video, she said that he did grab her face. She mentioned that there was a scratch on her face, you know. Um, and yeah, when you look at the law, the, the the punishment for that isn't is imprisonment. You know, she was crying and upset. I would also advocate, though, that, you know, maybe police officers aren't the best people to handle domestic violence calls. You know, so maybe um, the state would maybe, you know, from this point forward, look at what they're doing and how they're responding and either offer training for the police officers when it comes to domestic violence or maybe call someone, you know, that's trained in uh, going forward. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, Jessica, you know, there is a movement to getting non-police officers involved, especially in cases of domestic violence, in cases of some, uh, you know, mental illness, because to Tony's point, police officers may not be the best people to deal with those situations. In this case, you know, do you think there was any bias involved? I mean, why do you think these police officers let them proceed, understanding that Hindsight is 2020. Police officers have incredibly difficult jobs. And of course, none of them foresaw that she would end up murdered shortly after this, this traffic stop. Yeah, I thought it was interesting just on the part of the city, too, that they did note after the um, report came out and they commended that these police officers exercised um, empathy and compassion in their handling of this case, which seemed to me like maybe they were getting ahead of that component of people arguing that these guys weren't necessarily best situated to be handling this situation, um, given that this has been kind of a hot topic, you know, in the recent uh, couple of years. So, yeah, it seemed like they were kind of addressing what everyone might be thinking that, you know, this just wasn't they weren't necessarily equipped to be um the ones broaching this um, very emotional, um, sensitive issue and making the judgment calls that they did. So, um, yeah, I think there definitely could be some bias that, you know, came into play where they looked at these two and didn't necessarily see any obvious signs of, you know, um, you know, predatorial behavior and were able to kind of give them the pass and think that, you know, chances are it was just a, you know, more harmless quarrel between a young boyfriend and girlfriend. And that kind of, you know, led to the outcome that we saw. So. And again, I mean, yeah, I agree with all that. And again, like it's sort of interesting that we're talking about this case, 
you know, as we celebrate Martin Luther King, as we just covered a couple of, you know, stories, the Ahmaud Arbery story and um, the Laquan McDonald story, we've covered extensively the missing white women syndrome uh, situation, right? And this is a prime example. And honestly, the fact that we're, it's our lead story today, and the fact that I got so much attention and the fact that it warranted an investigation, I think shows that that white women sin, missing white women syndrome is a real thing and continues to be a real thing. How many women of color get abducted, killed every single day that don't get this kind of attention, nor do they get subsequent investigations by state governments that get a lot of attention. So it's unfortunate. You know, I do think we're, you know, in our tiny little way, perpetuating this to some extent, but uh, it is a prominent legal story. That's why we covered it. But that continues to be something that, you know, bothers me that, uh, White women get all this attention and, and other victims don't. But let's keep moving on. I don't know if either one of you have any quick thoughts on that, but happy to hear from you. Agreed. Um, I agree that, um, you know, just just a quick story. And this is kind of off the topic and kind of dark humor. But I took a business trip a few months ago and um, and I, I told my manager, you know, just jokingly, I said, you know, well, if I go missing, they won't look for me, you know, because that's I mean, you know, now, me, you know, it was dark, but it's a reality um, that a lot of the stories of the domestic violence, the abuse, even when it is reported, um, they go, uh, they don't get as much attention and, and there's not a lot of intervention in that. So um, it's unfortunate. Definitely. Moving on. We also remember the unfortunate tornado last month in downstate Illinois that killed multiple warehouse workers because the employer said that they couldn't leave. Well, it looks like something similar happened to an Amazon worker in that same tornado. And the family of the victim, Rich, says that the big business is also to blame. Yeah, this week, a local firm here in Chicago, Clifford Law Offices, that pretty prominent firm. We have a lot of cases with them. I mean, they filed a lawsuit where they're alleging that Amazon and some other defendants, but primarily the biggest name is Amazon, was negligent. Uh, That's a term that our listeners hear all the time. Uh, was negligent in allowing, number one, in, in, in making these employees stay at their post despite having hours and, in fact, you know, days notice that a tornado was coming through, number one. And number two, that they provided inadequate uh, shelter for them once they were on the job, right? I mean, many employees, thankfully, abandoned their jobs and went to seek shelter. The allegation in this complaint is that Amazon was not equipped, even though it was a four-year-old building, that it was not equipped, even though it was in this area that has a lot of these kind of natural disaster, it wasn't equipped with a below-level basement shelter, and that they provided inadequate shelter, resulting in the death of six employees, including this one uh, um, uh, driver, 26-year-old male, whose family has now filed a lawsuit. So, you know, listen, on the one hand, as someone who defends a lot of companies like Amazon all the time for cases like this. Um, I understand that there's another side to it. And Amazon has come out and said that we sympathize, of course, but uh, legally we did what we should have. On the other hand, of course, you sympathize greatly with the family of this individual who was on the job and who unfortunately passed away. So uh, Jessica, you are general counsel for a company. You have handled uh, before that many cases like not necessarily like this exactly, but where corporations are being accused of negligence. Thoughts generally on on this case? Well, what jumped out at me initially, and I'm sure jumped out at you too, Rich, um, you know, kind of dusting off my old 
excellent workers' compensation training um, was the fact that independent contractor was noted. So right away, you're thinking exclusive remedy. Um, he would be, you know, filing a case under workers' compensation, but then you realize he was an independent contractor, so he can sue and did sue civilly um, as opposed to through the um, workers' comp commission. So um, ordinary negligence is the standard as opposed to, um, you know, the much easier hurdle of proving, you know, that a, a job-related accident occurred. Um, so, yeah, I think given the facts we have right now, just that this was in an area where tornadoes, I'm sure, um, you know, came through at least, you know, several times a year that it would be surprising that they wouldn't have adequate shelter, um, response plans in place, emergency evacuation plans in place. So it sounds like they have a fair case on their hands. And I'm definitely wondering how many of these victims were independent contractors as opposed to actual employees. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Tony, this is right in your wheelhouse, right? Because you work in the construction field, you advise clients all the time on construction-related risks, which, again, in this case, Amazon is saying that we comply with all codes, uh, all standards. This is uh, not an old building. It's a four-year-old building, so we are not liable for that. I want to get your uh, perspective on that, but also bigger picture perspective on, you know, this case will likely settle, right? I mean, Amazon is a huge corporation. They got deep pockets. They are very concerned with their brand. This case will not see the light of day in a trial. But so far, Amazon is denying liability. And if it did go to trial, how much do you think influence would it have on juries to consider Amazon's public image right now, right? The Amazon is tagged today with the idea of Greed over employee benefits, right? All, we're, we're just uh, a pure for-profit corporation, which they, of course, are, but that we don't care about minimum wages. We don't care about overworking employees. We are the worst place on earth to work, according to a lot of their employees. So that will undoubtedly have influence on a jury if it goes that far. Number one, your thoughts on that. But also, from a construction risk perspective, what are your thoughts? Lots of questions, not a lot of time. Go. <laughs> Well, okay, I'll boil, boil this down as, as quickly as I can. Um, it, it's shocking to me. Um, again, the, the, I would look to the structural, um, in engineering reports, you know, um, knowing that this was in that certain type of zone, um, and knowing just on the underwriting side that a lot of times, you know, there's a certain construction that is, you know, required for, for those types of uh, zones where weather comes through like that. So I'm just kind of shocked. I looked at the pictures and it didn't look that, um, and, you know, of course, I'm just eyeballing it, but it didn't look as stable or as sturdy. I don't know if that makes sense as it, as it should be being in that type of area, but um, I'm sure they'll go back and do some investigation and there may be, you know, some finger pointing on Amazon's part to maybe the, you know, general contractor or the. Yeah. To your point, those are among the other defendants are the, are the GCs and some of the subs. So yeah. Exactly. exactly. So there could be finger pointing, you know, um, within that when it comes to, I totally agree with the, this is loss of life that we're talking about here. And um, this is, like you said, an organization that is kind of known. The joke is, you know, especially for the drivers, you know, them not being able to stop and, you know, having to use the restroom where they can, you know, we hear those types of jokes and kind of laugh about it, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, I think I'm shocked that Amazon would not just settle um, and, and that they would kind of, in my opinion, dig their heels in um, at this point. Um, and I'm just curious to see what the other five, uh, the people, 
families will, will do as well. This will turn into some type of class action or how it moves forward. Even the Boston Marathon bomber received a stimulus check apparently last year, and the U.S. government thinks that that money rich should be turned over to the victims. You can't. I mean, let's file this under the you can't make this shit up. We could say shit on our favorite legal podcast, Legal Face Off. You can't make this up. Last time we covered, Joe, if you remember, uh, the IRS requirement that if you steal money, you still have to declare that as income, which is a head scratcher. Um, well, the IRS is at, is at it again. The federal government's at it again. And just when you thought that your taxpayer money was going wasted, you read this story where, yeah, uh, uh, Tsarnaev, I can't even pronounce his first name, but we all know Tsarnaev as the Boston bomber, uh, you know, killed many people uh, in the Boston bombing and has been sentenced to uh, life in prison. Well, even that guy got the benefit of federal government taxpayer money because, as you mentioned, he got $1,400 in a stimulus payment in June 2021. By the way, he also received $21,000 from various sources to his account. Um, but $1,400 of that was federal stimulus money. And of course, now the government is saying, you know, we want that money back. He owes a ton of restitution. He's only paid a small portion of the amount of restitution that's been ordered of him. But how does this happen? I mean, how does the government even allow that check to go to him? And now they want it back. Well, yeah, we want it back. But why is it paid in the first place, Tony? I mean, what what the hell's going on here? Yeah, this was one of those strange kind of cases to me when I when I read it. Um, yeah, like you said, when I when I looked at the restitution, I mean, he owes like if if my eyes don't deceive me. It's like over a hundred million dollars. And- I had to read that again. I, I, I was not sure if that was a hundred thousand, but it's a hundred over 101 million. Yes. Yes, exactly. Which is an astounding amount of money. But, but the fact that he has $21,000 in an account is an astounding amount of money and he's a felon, right. you know? So I, I don't think that the money should have gone to him in the, in the first place, but I think this is bigger than him. You know, um, if he's receiving it, that means other felons are receiving it according as long as they meet the irs requirements yeah, it's, so, it's, it's amazing I mean, we'll, we'll get to another story of a prisoner uh abusing the system here in a moment it's kind of a uh, aligned with that but yeah it's, it's shocking stuff exactly I, now let me ask this question i mean was is there a way that the prosecuting attorneys like when he was convicted could they have done something to set something up in the future to say any money that this person receives won't go personally to them it's a, it's a great question we actually just uh we just had on the attorney who represented the family of ahmaud arbery in that case he's running for texas attorney general we didn't get to this question but in that case uh, there was a motion to prevent the defendants, the convicted felons, the murderers, from benefiting from writing books, appearances, that kind of thing. So I think it's a great point that you make that that should have been done early on in this case. Now, maybe it's a little different because he applied for the federal government. But yeah, I mean, it would seem common sense that the moment you're convicted, in this case of killing four people at a marathon, it should be clear that you get nothing, let alone from the same government that convicted you. Come on. I would say, on the other hand, because I was reading last year when this kind of, um, you know, came to light in terms of the arguments for and against inmates also receiving the federal stimulus check, 
it was actually Dick Durbin who argued in favor, saying that it would unfairly harm these inmates' families if they were excluded from the federal stimulus checks. So using that logic, though, um, I think you'd still have a hard time understanding how this would end, end up getting funneled back into restitution. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit hard to follow the, the bouncing ball on this either way, um, especially if you're looking at the original intent of the federal stimulus check. So, it, I mean, the fact that he received it was a little bit bizarre. And then actually considering how this money should be used, should it be going towards his family if he is receiving it, or should it be going towards the families he's, you know, the victims that he's wronged? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> either way... Yeah. I mean, who cares about his family, right? I mean, the guy killed four people, maimed many others. You know, the last thing I think anyone's concerned about is this guy having enough money to buy, you know, smokes in the prison commissary. Right. I totally agree. Hey, and isn't there like a pay for stay rule in, in most states where prisoners actually have to pay a portion? Right. Of, of, so why couldn't it have been directed, you know, towards yeah. that? I'm just. Emily, curious. get get Dermot on it right away. Let's get him on to defend this policy. Joe, work, do you work on that? Yeah, yeah, I'll give it my best shot. Um, well, if you are going to court anytime soon, be sure to clear any appearances on any, in my opinion, very difficult to watch reality TV shows because Sarah Palin, she is uh, asking to remove her appearance on The Masked Singer because it may affect the outcome of her defamation lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, remember, uh, she's asking, and this lawsuit is proceeding. The court ruled that this defamation lawsuit is proceeding uh, in a few weeks. She's suing the New York Times for a piece that they wrote uh, blaming the former VP candidate in the death of Gabby Giffords, who was shot in Arizona. She's a congresswoman shot in Arizona. Well, Palin sued the New York Times over this, and that case is proceeding. So when you're suing for defamation, you're alleging that your reputation has been harmed by this invalid, inaccurate statement, right? Well, the point, even though they haven't explained it in their briefs, I think the point is that what reputation do you have if you're dressing as a bear singing on national TV, right? And in addition to that, she's got a long history of tweets and you know media appearances. So I think it's an excellent point that how concerned can you be about your reputation in this one article, this New York Times article, yet you're acting like a buffoon before, you know, whatever audience the mass Singer gets, which is not excluding Joe Brand. So, uh, Jessica, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, on this one? Um, well, I think, first of all, when you think about Sarah Palin in light of all of her other embarrassing, you know, media performances her as a dancing bear somehow isn't even that bad <laughs> relatively speaking right. in her uh, on her resume um but and i think you know these kind of celebrity game shows there's been plenty of celebrities who have made appearances and kind of done silly things and you know it's not like it's overly incriminatory you know incriminating just that someone kind of made a fool of themselves or kind of went on some karaoke type celebrity game show so that in itself i don't think is um, necessarily, um, you know, too prejudicial to even consider here. And I think the purpose of even including this evidence is the fact that to show just that, that she did, she was considered a celebrity. She did have a wide reach. She did have a big platform at the time. She might have been making these, um, statements that, you know, I think were 
that she ended up alleging to be defamatory in terms of these advertisements and just the wide reach that her advertisements had, which was the basis of that New York Times article that she, um, you know, used her platform for um, potentially demonizing other people, which led to the tragedy that had unfolded. So I think, you know, when we think about this, it's obviously whether the probative value um, is outweighed by the prejudicial nature of this dancing bare footage. And at first I was thinking, yeah, how could this have any relevance? But when you think about it, I mean, if it's just simply to show that she was a celebrity, she did, you know, exhibit A, show up on these types of celebrity game shows, it, I don't think it necessarily would be excluded. Yeah. Rich, we've covered prison snack complaints in the past, but I think this one might take the gluten-free cake. Uh, A double murderer is trying to stick to the vegetarian lifestyle, but claims that the tofu in jail is just not suitable. It's a tough tough, uh, day on on the grab bag. What do you have? When you catch a side of the Boston bomber is the most disgusting story that we're covering involving prisoners, you know, getting treated well, but Lo and behold, you got Nicholas Roos, Nicholas Ian Roos. By the way, you always add the middle name for murders, right? Isn't that kind of the, the golden rule of <laughs> murders? You add the middle name. Definitely. Nicholas Ian Roos was uh, uh, convicted of uh, double murder, and he's filed a litany of you know complaints to as, as high as the U.S. Supreme Court alleging that he's being uh, treated unfairly, that his constitutional protections are not being um, afforded to him, uh, things we've seen with many prisoner cases. But the one that survived is that he's alleging that his yoga is watery. I'm sorry, his tofu is watery. Um, Close enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that uh, he has a religious and dietary restriction that allows him to, that doesn't allow him to eat most prison, prison food, and that in order to comply with that, he has to have tofu. And he's complaining that the tofu is not quite up to his standard of care. That is merit. That merits a lawsuit. That merits the government, the courts, actually coming in and ruling on this. Tony, I, I don't know. I, I don't eat tofu very much. Um, I have no problem with it. I pride myself on a very healthful diet. But he's in prison. Newsflash. He's in a prison. Exactly. I've never heard of tofu in prison. That was my initial thoughts. Uh, sir, you're convicted of murder. Um, so <laughs> that was my first reaction to this. But now he's, you know, claiming to practice Hinduism. And it was so shocking to me because Hinduism opposes killing or violence. Huh. But they do believe in capital punishment if it protects the innocent. So I think the fact that he is <laughs> even getting tofu, <laughs> you know, based on um, if you're following, you know, the, the Hinduism belief is, is is good. But, you know, so he's not talking. It's not like they're not making an accommodation for him, but his complaint is about the the, the quality. But at what point? You know, is he allowed to keep filing these erroneous lawsuits? Is there something that can come along and like, you know, stop him from doing this? Because to, to me, it just seems like a waste of of time and, and just foolishness to me. So you're a big tofu guy. I, I'm not at all. I think I've had it twice. I And I will try everything, but I just do not. Would you I try can't. prison tofu, though? That's what <laughs> I will never. I hope I never have to try prison tofu. But but if it, it doesn't reach my standards, you better believe you're going to hear from me. Uh, Rich, I would love to hear what a few judges have had to say about you when you've left the courtroom. But this 
particular Cook County judge was caught mocking an attorney on the court's live stream. And we're ending off our show today with two uh, interesting stories about judges. Questionable, we'll call it, we'll, we'll, we'll nicely call it questionable behavior. Yeah, this one here in Cook County where we practice law uh, was caught on a YouTube live stream. Like you said, mocking a lawyer. Here's the words. Can you imagine waking up next to her every day? Oh, my God, Judge William Rain said of an attorney named Jennifer Bonjean. I couldn't have a visual on that if you paid me. Uh, it, it, it gets way worse than that. Um, there's way worse discussions about uh, her behavior. Uh, also on this live stream, we heard one of the attorneys, one of the Cook County State's attorneys. By the way, taxpayer funded, right? This We talked earlier about where our taxpayer dollars are going. Uh, one of the attorneys said that uh, a male looked like a 13-year-old boy. Then the judge said, that's her man-child. And then, of course, the meeting ended off by saying, the judge said, oh, wait, meeting is streaming live on YouTube. What's up with this? I would have loved to see that part. I, I haven't been able to pull the video. It's now taken down. But, you know, of course, there's now been in the wake of this, like discussions about discipline and apologies and yada, yada, yada. But I've been before judges hundreds of times. You know, you don't always agree with what they're saying. And sometimes they could be a little bit aggressive, but I've never seen anything like this. Uh, Jessica, we talk a lot on our show about civility and the need to be a little bit more um, civil to each other. Uh, you've appeared before many judges, but and I do think your perspective is interesting, as is Tony's, because I think women are treated very differently, right? I mean, to this day, many judges are still in this old boys network, especially in Cook County. It's a very old school system, and I think it's very difficult for women to appear before judges. Uh, and you see this kind of behavior, not as overt as this, but you both know way better than I do that this still goes on. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we're looking at the issues raised by this story, you know, one of, you know, the obvious ones is sexism. And I think that, you know, like you said, if you pulled most female attorneys, I don't think they would, you know, say that they're shocked that there might be some sexist attitudes on the part of their opposing counsel, judges, uh, what have you. So I think, though, for this to be kind of unveiled in such an obvious black and white uh, manner, and the fact that this guy got caught red-handed um, expressing pretty overtly sexist attitudes towards her was the shocking part. Um, and then I think it also sort of dovetails into um whether, you know, there was some impropriety here and whether he was able to be impartial in the handling of this case with these pretty obviously sexist um, and negative attitudes towards this attorney. Yeah, great points. Tony, what are your, what are your thoughts on it? I totally agree with that. Um, I mean, just even Jessica, you can probably relate getting ready for the, the Zoom calls. You know, um, we're we're having to do, you know, a little bit more, invest a little bit more time. Yeah, I think it just comes to professionalism. And I think when you when you hold that particular role, you are held to a higher standard of professionalism. And um, he just did not exercise that. This is really one of those times, you know, when you were younger and you used to use your outside voice inside, you know, and your parents would tell you, you know, use your inside voice. This was the inside voice he should have kept in his head. We did not need to hear that. And especially inciting others, because I think it speaks to another issue of pressure. You know, he is in a higher position and he is in inciting others, you know, to, to go along with this. So I think it speaks to a power issue as well. 
Yeah, and I think it, you know, just really raises some serious questions. If you were her client um, for the case at issue that day, I think you'd be concerned. You know, what how is the how is my case going to be outcome going to be affected by these attitudes? Exactly. Well, what struck me also before we just move on is, you know, the judge was talking about her yelling and uh, referenced how she was using her hair. These are all like dog whistles, right, for uh, misogynistic behavior and attitudes towards women, right? I mean, of course, you know, yeah. when a woman is uh, opinionated, when she's advocating, she was doing her job. I wasn't there, but she was doing her job advocating as a lawyer. That is perceived by someone like this in a position of power as being hysterical, yelling, crazy. All the tropes you hear about over the years about women lawyers, this judge brought onto the open. So I think it's good news in some respects, to your point, Jessica, that we hear and we talk about it and we shed light on it because so much of it, 99% of it goes unreported, right? So, Absolutely. Caught red-handed. That's right. Well, let's continue with questionable behavior by judges like this one in Michigan telling an elderly cancer patient that their overgrown grass and weeds in the alleyway was, quote, shameful and jail time worthy, but in the end ended up being a $100 fine, Rich. I mean, you got to see the video. We didn't have time to throw the video up, um, but I mean, the video speaks for itself, right? Speaking of Zoom, of court appearances, uh, this is a judge. And it's a obviously a minor infraction, right? I mean, this judge is clearly uh, hearing cases in small claims or whatever, whatever the misdemeanor traffic court he's in or, or she's in. It's minor cases, right? This is a guy who uh, uh, is letting allegedly his grass grow too great. And uh, he is saying to her, I'm a cancer patient. His he could barely breathe right uh, uh, on, on the on the video. You hear him. Difficulty breathing. He's also foreign speaking. His command of English isn't the greatest. So those three things versus a guy letting his grass grow too big. Now, listen, I live in the city. I have an alley. I take pride in my alley and, you know, keep it up. Does that mean I should be shamed and yelled at by a judge for letting my grass grow too great, especially when I have cancer, when I can barely breathe and when I maybe am new to this country? I mean, come on, you know, there's always a different perspective, but I mean, this judge kept going too. the the great thing is like, you can maybe excuse an initial response. The judge hears every nonsensical excuse every single day and is right in taking an aggressive stance from the beginning, you could argue. But once she hears this guy's explanation and then she keeps going and says, you should be ashamed and explain to me why I shouldn't lock you up. Can't make this stuff up. Jessica, Tony. Yeah, I don't let your grass grow in the in the in, in this <laughs> exactly. jurisdiction in, in Michigan. I kept thinking, is she part of the homeowners association there? I mean, she right. took it personally, you know. And and I felt so so bad for um for the guy. And you know, like you said, Rich, I think part of it though her frustration because not only did she start off at a hundred, but I think there was an underlying frustration of his. He was he was trying to understand what she was saying, because you can tell that English wasn't his first language. And as he's trying to process and then string the words together, I think that added an extra layer of frustration that just, you know, it it went higher. So I think part of it, I I don't think it was just the lawn itself. Um, I think there was this uh, communication, um, what she perceived as an issue that escalated this more, in my opinion. Definitely. 
Yeah, I'll also note when watching the video, it almost seemed, and I say this much less as an excuse because I think it actually might pose a bigger issue. It almost seemed like she didn't hear him. You know, she responds and, you know, he responds and then she kind of goes on her, you know, um, scolding. And then her son tries to also explain that he has cancer. And there's still no response to what anyone was saying on her part, visibly at least. And it almost seemed like she couldn't hear them, and which I think might pose a bigger issue, you know, by Zoom calls. And judges should still make sure they're hearing the response, um, you know, from the defendant in these matters. But it seemed like she either wasn't interested in hearing what he had to say, maybe it was the accent. Um, for whatever reason, it seemed like there was a communication barrier, and then she kind of didn't hear or care and just went on her, you know, scolding and expressions of outrage. Or maybe she cared more about the grass in her uh, alley than... That's possible, too. <laughs> but, but to go from the one extreme to, this is shameful, you should be thrown in jail, to $100 fine just shows that there was some underlying emotions with that. I don't know. One of the many topics we've covered here on Legal Grab Bag on the Legal Face Off podcast. And that does it for this week's edition. Big thanks to Jessica and Tony for joining us here on Legal Grab Bag, along with our earlier guests of Dr. Latrice, William Calloway, Lee Merrick, Gabe Roth, and Professor Huberfeld. Our producers, Yvonne Barbos, Emily Flores, and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to the Legal Face Off podcast. Please give us five stars. For Tina Martini, who is missing today, Rich Langkloff, I'm Joe Brand. We will have our next Legal Face-Off podcast in two weeks. We'll see you then. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.